our previous episode, we discussed the Panjway and Boardwalk podcast views on what led up to the chaotic Afghanistan evac and their perspective on the how and why of everything from accountability to strategic misfires. Their perspectives are just a few of many out there coming from veterans who have served in our nation's longest war. It's important for us to understand what's going through the mind of those who have watched Afghanistan crumble to the Taliban. One thing I still want to know is if these last 20 years were a waste, or if there are glimmers of hope we can hold on to. The numbers I want to focus on center on education. In 2001, less than 900,000 Afghan children were in school, and of course all of them were boys. As of 2016, that number has increased more than tenfold, and girls made up 38% of those students. In 2016, an estimated 9.5 million Afghan children were attending school. These generations growing up from 2001 to 2020 were afforded an education because of our involvement alongside others in the international community. Many Afghans gained degrees, certifications, and even went on to attend higher education in other countries. Although it's tragic that their country fell, knowing that our service members gave them hope and education is far more than worthless. But this now begs the question on our intervention in the first place. What are the ethics and obligations surrounding our nation's foreign involvement? In this continued discussion with the amazing veterans behind both the Panjway podcast and the Boardwalk podcast, we'll branch off from focusing on Afghanistan and asking this larger world question. In my experience, conversations are best had with a glass of whiskey. Join me, Alan Kogan, as I engage in meaningful discussions while enjoying a glass of my favorite spirit. Welcome to the Kogan Conversation. This might be a larger question. It might, it's going to direct the conversation a different way, but I, and probably towards what we want to talk about further in a, in, a lot, in a larger picture things. But what's next for Afghanistan? What's, what's, what's their role in the world? Are they going to be, is, is there an optimistic view of what happens next? Is, is there something that we can you know, look forward to potentially, or is, is, it, is it just doom and gloom right now in the Middle East? Doom and gloom. It's going to be civil war. Is that, so is that with ISIS-K or is it going to be? Everyone. Everybody. It's going to be NRF, ISIS-K, warlords. Hazaras. Hazaras, you know, private mercenary groups. It's going to be, the, this the, right now is probably as peaceful as Afghanistan is going to be for the next 10 years would be my guess. Because once after winter, it's going to be on. I, I agree with Curtis, but I also think, and, and I was thinking this the other day, I, I think that China may be the next empire to go throw themselves into the Afghan quagmire because, of course, the Taliban are going to want to align themselves with some sort of uh, international power. And right now, it seems like that is China. They, they, they've opened up the door. I mean, obviously, the Gulf states, but the Gulf states aren't really at that, that level of superpower. They're not Russia. They're not China. They're not the United States. So they're going to align themselves, I think, with China. And China is going to make some deals with the Taliban. And what's going to happen is that the uh, Taliban will either incur some sort of infighting or they will have to fight against other groups vying for power within the country, they're going to want to, then they're going to reach out. They're going to say, well, China, we really need help. We need help militarily and all that. And then basically, I think China is going to get sucked right into the same thing. Really? You think you think they're going to commit ground troops? Oh, man, that'd be spicy. I think Cal is spot on, man. I think that uh, they're going to get greedy eyes on those lithium because that's the next big money. You know, China is, has borders Afghanistan. Like everybody forgets that. But China, it's a small border. But China borders Afghanistan. And so they've like, they've got a funnel that they can dump troops and and ammunition and money and people and airplanes and things like that into. Um, but I'm curious to see the dynamics of that panning out because I kind of wonder if they will hit the same kind of resistance that the Soviets did in that very pocketed, you know, Mujahideen uprisings against the invader while the dominating government is more or less in line with what they have to say, i.e. the Taliban. It, it'd be curious to see if that 
were to pan out, I think that that's the next uh, the next empire that will go to their graveyard. There is is China going to do some similar like nation building stuff there then too? Like no, because they don't give a fuck about nation building, man. Like they, they yeah, they they're want they're going to go in there. The only thing that China's going to do is put. 15,000 guys in a circle around a lithium mine. They'll do some infrastructure building, but they're not going to do a fucking thing about the Afghan government. No, they don't fucking care about the government or the people. Yeah, like when you look at their their Belt and Road Initiative, they are more than willing to build shit for people because it benefits them. They don't give a flying fuck what the Afghan government does with ethnic minorities or women. Well, we know how they feel about, about Muslims too. And I, I mean, right. I'm curious if that turns into something as well, if they do end up getting involved there, especially with, again, a shared border. But. I'm going to disagree with Kyle. I don't think they're going to commit troops. I don't think they're going to commit military, but I think they will flood the country with the Chinese equivalent of NGOs. I think you will see Chinese construction companies everywhere, and they will heavily invest in the infrastructure selfishly so that they can move stuff into China. China because that that border that they share, there's not even a road that crosses it. So that's like step one. Yeah, it's right in the middle of the Hindu Kush. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing. They, there's a there's a road that goes to up to about a mile from the border from the from the uh, Chinese side. You know how fast the Chinese can build a road to that fucking thing, though. <laughs> I, I know, <laughs> or I know. a tunnel. Yeah, but I'm saying that's going to be their first priority. I don't disagree, Curtis, but I think you know once you start flooding the country with NGOs, at a certain point, you're going to have to protect your interests. I, I really, I really think that it's going to be interesting. It's it's going to be years. I mean, we don't know. I'll probably be dead by the time we figure this out. Yeah, I mean, it might be 70 years from now before that pans out. I don't think China is going to gonna send business interests into the country without military protection because it's still Afghanistan, despite what, what some stupid uh, Westerners who choose to backpack through there with their pregnant wives might think. Uh, that, that's a, that, that's a, that's an inside joke for anyone who's been in Afghanistan. We had a, we had a lost uh, American and Canadian over there, but um, yeah, they're, they're definitely going to protect their their minds and their business interests over there which will be theirs when they when they uh, make the offers I mean I think the only other like superpower in the area or, or power in the area who would be like a countering influence would maybe be Iran just because they care about Shias you know no matter where they are in the world but I don't think that you'd find much resistance from them beyond like maybe the IRGC funding and training like local groups there there there's never not going to be fighting in Afghanistan. You're still going to have the local groups and the local warlords. But as far as like a higher level, I think I think that's gone for now. When, when you look at that internal, like what's going to happen in Afghanistan internally, I think Curtis is right, right? Civil war. The only difference is I think this was going to be a much slower burn than the previous one because who the hell really is there for the Taliban to counter this time around? They fucking killed or we've killed or captured everyone, right? Ishmael Khan is under house arrest. Dostum is probably in Turkey. Uh, the NRF, while they have the fighting spirit and the will, they, they can't, they can only do so much, right? The Pashtuns are going to align with the Taliban especially in the South, you're not going to see any kind of pushback there. And that's 40, literally 42% of the country. So you, you, there, yeah, there'll be pockets of fighting, but it's going to be significantly different from what was happening from 89 to 96. And the politics on those Northern borders have changed too. You know, Tajikistan is still firmly opposed to the 
the Taliban, but Tajikistan is also firmly beholden to their uh, their great leader, the real great leader, Putin. So Putin doesn't want Tajikistan involved against the Taliban. Tajikistan's not going to help the NRF, whereas you know twenty years ago they would have. Wasn't Tajikistan like squarely against accepting anybody leaving Afghanistan during this whole shit show? They're the most promising destination for refugees right now. They're probably the only place that yeah, Uzbekistan is firmly against, Turkmenistan is firmly against, but Tajikistan might might come around on it. But as of right now, they're they're closed. Uh, unfortunately, one of the first places the Taliban took was the border with Tajikistan and uh, Afghanistan, which was which was kind of tough. A lot of uh, a lot of ANA fled north and uh, were seeking refugee status after that. Probably wasn't by coincidence. But but to bring that up, like we would talk about Tajikistan now versus Tajikistan 15, 20, 30 years ago, Curtis is absolutely right. Like they have Tajikistan has an interest in keeping and Uzbekistan for that matter and Turkmenistan and keeping Islamic extremists and ideologues beyond their borders at the same time. They can't upset the apple cart that's being driven by Vladimir Putin. So they're in a, a super tough spot where you, you might see some attempts at clandestine support, but I mean, who knows? It, it's it's going to be really difficult for them to try to repel any sort of, and, and I, I don't mean repel as in like there's going to be a full on offensive into Tajikistan, but you know th- this stuff, it, it grows and it spreads, right? Al-Qaeda, when, when we talked about them and we posted a little graphic, like on 9-11, Al-Qaeda was pretty much in Afghanistan. Now they're in all of Northern Africa. They're in Eastern Africa. They're throughout the Middle East. They're in the Indian subcontinent, right? That shit, it's just going to spread like wildfire. And that's their concern. But they've, they've got to play both sides of it and it puts them in a really tight spot. Yeah, especially seeing, uh, since they share a border with Uzbekistan, seeing, you know, what the IMU has done over there. I mean, is there, maybe there's a, I mean, if, if China goes in there, does, does the United States stand to benefit or does the world stand to benefit from China losing their ass? in some way, or do they just have so many bodies and, and resources and they don't really care and give a shit like you said about the Afghanistan government? Uh, I'm not, I'm not willing to speculate that far into the future. I, I've, I've, I feel like I've, I feel like I've already like summoned, like consulted the Oracle and I, I've already feel like I've said too much now. So like now, now I feel, I feel afraid to say anything more. <laughs> I think it's, it's going to depend on how China does it. it what, are, what are they going to commit? Are they going to, is it going to be the low end of the initiative where they send a couple NGOs and build some roads? Are they going to put 500,000 troops? in the country. It's going to vary. It'll look like China and Africa now. I could, I could see that. The difference being is that China and Africa now is so low key and nobody in the West gives a shit. I'm, I'm, I'm actually not familiar at all with what's what's going on there. Oh, so China is essentially doing an economic invasion of Africa. So China is setting up all sorts of infrastructure, mining, anything you can think of that needs a dollar sign thrown on it. China is back in the horse in all of Africa uh, if it benefits China. To bring it back to Afghanistan, they'll do the similar thing in that they'll go into Afghanistan economically and they'll set up those infrastructures and they'll they'll set all that up. And as soon as shit starts to get kind of spicy, if it starts to get real for them, they're not, they're smart enough not to get sucked into a war because they don't have enough hubris about Afghanistan like they do, say, the border of India to get sucked into a war. I suspect what it'll be is it'll be a withdrawal of sorts, but it'll be in a slow burn and that they will suck everything dry on the way out uh, and they and they're willing I, th- I would speculate that china is willing to pony up the cost be it monetary human whatever to allow that that sucking dry to happen 
as long as possible. Before I got out of the army, I spent my last two years as an analyst in the Pacific Theater. And one of the things that I was monitoring was this big economic expansion by China. And uh, it basically, we, we call it the Belt and Road Initiative. It's also called One Belt, One Road. In, in layman's terms, China is throwing a massive amount of debt out to developing nations or underdeveloped nations, hoping to ultimately cash in in the future when they become economically viable. And you're seeing that a lot in Africa. You're seeing that throughout the Pacific as much as possible, like South Asia. Uh, they have plans to, you know, to re- pretty much reconnect the old Silk Route. And then there's the, they call it the Maritime Silk Road going from their ports on the Eastern coast past the Philippines. You see there's a lot of uh, stuff in the news. If you're, if you're like us and you actually are interested in this stuff about land reclamation projects, where they're literally moving dirt from one part of the globe to another part to create islands to either be ports or naval bases or coast guard stations, things like that in order to expand their economic presence. So ultimately, yeah, China will pony up the money because in the event that Afghanistan becomes becomes viable for this lithium and all the other minerals that are there, they would stand to benefit the most. Yeah, the, the story there is that don't, don't go buy the iPhone 14. <laughs> no, no, man, we're we're outsmarting them by uh, continuing to print money. That's that's how you that's how you beat that. But to answer your original question, Alan, I, I do th- in a very simple way. Sorry, I know we've we've talked a lot about it, but I, I think um, definitely uh, even more. Yeah, there always was while we were there interference and influence from the Gulf states. Um, I, I think even more influence from the Gulf states, even more influence from China trying to figure out how they're going to work with the Taliban to extract and, and benefit from the situation. And then in, in the future, I, I don't know. I don't know if that I don't know what that means. Yeah, I think Curtis is absolutely right. There's going to be pockets of civil war. But like Zach even said, it's all I mean, who are they going to fight? We've they're all either dead or in prison now. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious at all speculating into the future then. Obviously, like there's a lot of frustration that's come out of just like the last 20 years and obviously what just happened, but just thinking like what will likely end up happening there with all the civil war, it, it, does it, is it breed more frustration from any of you really? It's, it's not a shocker. When you live your life in complete cynicism yeah. after <laughs> Afghanistan, nothing, nothing really shocks you anymore. I mean, is it terrible? Absolutely. Do I recognize I can do nothing to stop it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We kind of we kind of had to make our peace during the during the just just quick takeover that the Taliban made. I, I think I think during the the weeks after they started taking the south and then just uh, expanding every everywhere else, we kind of made our peace with it. To that point, though, is is there whose job is it to to manage the PR fire? Is it is it is it just the White House, or is it? Because obviously, there's there's two sides of the coin. There's the veteran side, which obviously there's. I I don't want to see the mental health numbers. I'm I'm afraid to see those numbers in the next couple of years of what happens from people who are just dealing with the you know was it worth it question. Um, people who've lost loved ones. I've lost loved ones over there, but uh, but and then the civilian side that. It, it might not sit down and listen or have a conversation like this to understand the, the, all the complexities of Afghanistan. Yeah, how do we how do we frame it to them? How do we explain to them? How do we how do we maybe make this a rose colored glass in some kind of way so that we don't lose our ass on, on just the trust with government? And that's a bigger political question, of course. But I, I I don't know what the whose job is that? Is it all of ours, or what what's the what's the forward path? Well, well, number one, you shouldn't trust the government. <laughs> yeah, definitely don't trust the government. Yeah, the, the 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 government is a big pot of lies sitting on a bigger pot of money. 
that they that they take from you and uh in general they are they are bad at their jobs and they don't have your best interests at heart as far as uh like 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 veterans are concerned uh veterans did their job they did the jobs that they were given when they went out there and it's the upper leadership and congress and a bunch of bureaucrats faults that the instructions given to them weren't clear or possible in a lot of cases yeah people with stars on their chest didn't do their job we talked about it at the beginning they lied they lied about it all the way for 20 straight years so yeah at the lower level sure i mean <laughs> at the upper level I, I don't know if you did your job I think you should feel some shame because you won't face any accountability for it. So it does it matter for the veterans? That's on you to determine that for yourself. That's it's not my place or I mean, even though our whole message has always been it was not a waste. It was not a waste. It was worth it. Your service was worth it. You know, really, it just comes down to the individual guy. Did you feel like it was worth it? Did you get something out of it? You know, maybe it was a waste for you. I mean, I, I can't speak for every individual veteran, but I, I do refuse to believe that going over there and doing your job wasn't worth it. I mean, that's what you were expected to do, right? I was really surprised with this administration. And and full disclosure, I didn't like the previous one or the one before that or the one before that. So this is this is not a partisan position, but just the lack of accountability. And, and I say that having had General Austin be my first commanding general when I was a young private and I thought he was pretty decent, right? And I was at the core level, right? So it was a lot different for me than it was for Luke and Curtis who in the line unit and their combat arms and they have to do actual army things, right? Uh, but I, I, I thought he was a pretty decent commander. He was our commander uh when we pulled out of Iraq and uh, whatever that went out that went over relatively smoothly considering I guess but to watch the the lack of accountability from him from Secretary Blinken from John Kirby the press spokesman from General McKenzie the Senate comm commander from all these people who President Biden came out and said yeah we talked about leaving out a bogger when we decided that H Kaya Hamid Karzai International Airport was the was what we would do like you you are directly responsible for 13 American deaths and what 160 Afghan deaths you are directly responsible for that, and nobody resigned. There, there. That's that's not honorable. It used to be that when you messed up that badly, you, you took your medicine and you stepped down. And I went so far in that episode. I thought President Biden should have stepped down because at the end of the day, like he said, the buck stops with him. So what we're seeing from this administration is that there's no, there are no standards to be upheld regarding accountability for actions. So that that makes me even more angry as as a former soldier who like. We talked about this stuff walking the boardwalk about how this war is dumb and we can't win it, yet we would show up every day as contractors making four times the money that the soldiers were making, but we were trying to win a war that was unwinnable. Like We didn't just show up for a paycheck. We, we tried to win this war. I got into several arguments with you know green suitor army leadership trying to win this thing. And it's all for naught. And the people who we entrusted to lead this effort, who we just had, I mean, there's no other way to say it than it's a colossal fuck up. They're all going to get promoted. Yeah, yeah, it was it was tough, man. I, I uh, so so when I when I was in the army, I was lucky enough to get to get assigned to Third Special Forces Group. Got to work with some great guys. I mean, like the tip top of the elite, dedicated soldier. And you know, I deployed three times with them, and they went out there and did everything that they could as the resources were dwindling. As we went from from having like five 
SF battalions in country to I think three and then down to one. You know, they they kept going out there and pushing, and their 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 leadership failed them. They they didn't have the resources. They didn't have the guidance that was necessary in order to see this thing through. And you know, looking back on it, you know, as as formative as and informative as it is has been for my life you know it hurts and it's it's something you know like curtis was saying that we're gonna have to sort of you know come to come to grips with and deal with afterwards basically anybody that's on tv deflecting blame should resign or be fired yeah i mean that's the biggest part of leadership right if you're if you're a in uh, a soldier or analyst with uh expertise in uh, afghanistan or whatever it's probably a good time to go to the news networks because they're apparently not hiring experts <laughs> to, to to talk about things there, there's there's news experts i think on fox that was talking about like oh is the taliban gonna have to contend with the haqqani network at this point Point, which is just ridiculous. I mean, Siraj is on the highest board of the Taliban that he could possibly be. Yeah, on. they don't want to hear from us anymore. <laughs> <laughs> there was like a there was a five day window where they wanted to talk to us. It's not. It's not. It's not yeah, you've outlived your usefulness. Get in line. Go to the yeah. VA. Right. Talk to yeah, your, yeah, yeah. Talk yeah. to your dog. Learn, learn, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Learn, learn Mandarin. Get ready for the next cool thing. Every month, Grant and I will tackle an important topic while enjoying a glass of whiskey. If you don't agree with our opinions on these issues, that's great. We want to hear from you and hear your side of the story. Our goal is to understand different perspectives and engage in conversations that matter without regressing to the same division that exists in our hyperpartisan politics. We can and must do better in finding common ground. Discussions breed solutions. The Kogan Conversation is a podcast that welcomes respectful discourse, paired with a glass of whiskey, of course. If you'd like to offer your take on an upcoming episode or join us for a glass of whiskey, please reach out to us on social media or head over to our website and send us a message. Wouldn't it be nice to know what topics are coming up and when an episode is releasing from the Kogan Conversation? Subscribing to our podcast on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, following us on Spotify, and of course following us on social media helps immensely. You can also head over to our website and sign up for our email list so you never miss out on any episodes or information. Cheers! Wait, is there is there any mitigation? I mean, I, should we have more military members or veterans having a hand on the wheel after their service in Congress, or to be a part of the of the conversation when it comes to legislation, the power of the purse? Like, what is there a way to to mitigate this issue where leadership is just sucking? No, I, to to answer that question, um, I think it would probably be more beneficial at the legislative level than at the Secretary of Defense level for sure. You look at somebody like Peter Meyer or Peter Mayer from Michigan, who I think very stupidly went to Kabul as a, as a PR stunt. But outside of that, I thought it's done a pretty decent job kind of uh, presenting uh, issues for veterans from the standpoint of a veteran, right? That's not the worst idea. You can have people like him and Dan Crenshaw who maybe would be more willing to say, hey, no, this is a dumb war. We need to leave now. Sure, I'll take that. The problem is more at that at that Pentagon level where you have retired generals who, if you've ever watched the news, I can't recall a single general ever saying 
oh no, this war can't be won. Like they all think it can be won. They all, like even H.R. McMaster, who I like, is like, oh no, the problem is we didn't send, we didn't commit enough troops and we didn't stay longer. That's clearly not the answer. So yeah, I, I would say at worst, it can't hurt to have more veteran voices in Congress. At best, we need fewer veteran voices in the civilian leadership of the Department of Defense. Well, that goes back to what I was saying earlier, you know, like uh, the the experiential versus the, the play. You know, if there was experienced veterans who are actually in Afghanistan, actually on the ground and or Iraq, whatever. Sure. You know, let, let them run for office. Like that would be great. But someone who is there to, to play up a political ploy or to reinforce a, a career move. You know, fuck that shit, man. Like the, those guys have no, no place. Here's the veterans I want in, in politics. I want the veterans in politics who don't want to be in politics. I want the guys who were commanders on the ground, enlisted guys, people that have no interest in politics. I want them to be forced to do it and forced to take on the helm against their will. I don't want career politicians because I don't care if you are a veteran or not. You know, there's a lot of shitty politicians that are veterans. Curtis, I'll keep your taxes down and leave you alone. (laughs) (laughs) Zach's tapped in uh, exactly what uh, appeals to Curtis. (laughs) That's the once a future king problem, right? Like anybody that wants to be king shouldn't shouldn't be. Right. But the problem is like our political system is it's a career system. Like you you become a politician to have a career in politics. I don't want that kind of kind. I don't want that kind of person making those kinds of decisions. Let's remove the incentives. Get rid of term limit or like install term limits. But that's a whole different. Thing. No, I think this is important though because it, it, it kind of bleeds into you know, who's making these larger decisions, like Afghanistan. You know, if, if in ten years time goes by, are are we back in Afghanistan because China left and they didn't do anything, and now we're we're facing a human rights atrocity? What, what's the my larger question for? I guess it's just episode and just talking to you guys and, and, and hearing what you think and what your experiences are in Afghanistan specifically. What's our moral obligation as a country, not military, just as an as a nation as a whole? Should I'm of the mind that I I would love to leave it to more nonprofits who are able to get security clearances and work with NGOs and go over to other places with the Red Cross and et cetera to do good things. But we're we're leaving Afghanistan high and dry in, in some ways, along with people who helped us during the war and even our own citizens in some ways. But I mean, North Korea exists and it's been existing for the last 40 years. And that's we're not going to touch that because of China. And I'm, I'm concerned that our we're blurring the lines as to what what are we going to go do? I, I, we don't know what would would happen in World War II had Pearl Harbor not happened? How long would it have taken us to realize that the Holocaust was as bad as it was? We didn't realize it was as bad as it was until we had boots on the ground looking at the concentration camps. So had had Pearl Harbor not happened and we find out, would we have gone? With our resources and our power, would we have the moral obligation to do something about it? And I guess I'll just throw that out into the ether. What do you guys think? Do we have the moral obligation to bring back to the United States or to a friendly country the people that helped us? Absolutely. Would we 100% have that power? We are the United States of America. We were a first world country, an absolute hegemon, a superpower, whatever. If we want to get the people out of Afghanistan that helped us, we have the power and the authority and the moral right to do so. And if anything is is not said in this podcast, 100%, we have an obligation as, as a country to help those people. If you help the United States at all, like we should go back and we should get you. Because it's an absolute travesty that the people that, that we have not only Americans left there, but like people that helped us there and American soldiers were, were not the last on the plane because that's that's an absolute travesty. 
So as far as moral obligations, that's it. That we extend to Afghanistan, that's the best we can do right now, I believe. Besides what Kyle said, which I absolutely agree with, I, I don't want us to get embroiled in moral moral obligations to move in force to other countries. Uh, I think we've already learned pretty well that we we nation building is really hard and we're not that good at it. And I don't know if, if the US isn't good at it with all of its resources and capabilities, I don't I don't know that anyone's all that good at it. Um, in in general, if there's uh if if there are, you know, women's or human rights abuses in another country, I don't want us to commit troops to it because we we'd have to invade half the half the known world at this point anyway to um fix all of those and i i like the us to move away from being like the world's problem solver and you know almost solely going in by itself to to try to solve other nations problems i think it would be better to try to solve issues in our own country move move away from trying to solve the world's problems and try to try to fix things up here for for a few decades if only we created an organization after world war ii to do exactly what you just suggested (laughs) (laughs) that organization is useless yeah Yeah, if only they weren't toothless and just unable to (laughs) to right join us next time when we talk about the united nations and their absolute I mean, is there is there a line though? Is there is there any kind of event that I mean, uh, the only event that came, comes to mind for me is is World War II, and that that was something so different than what we have with modern warfare. So you know, is there is there a line where the United States almost has to get involved because it's it, it's not only knocking on other people's doors, but it's knocking on our door as a as a as a human rights genocidal tr- atrocity across borders. So let's let's look at that and and we, we think about them like the mission of the US military, right? To so go out and in, in defense of the U of the United States and our interest. Can you have a more subjective sentence than and our interest? Because who's our most important trade partner? It's China. What if Russia decides they want to annex China? Do we then go and go and forward deploy in defense of Beijing? Right? That's 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 really really vague, and and so I, I think you have to have hard lines in the sand where you say no. Like we, we need to get rid of that and U.S. interest, in because what's not a U.S. interest in a in the global economy, right? Is why we went into Iraq in '91 because we were concerned about them eventually trying to go to Saudi Arabia, right? So, so I, no, I I think. When we look at that, as it stands right now, nothing's off the table. But in reality, most everything should be off the table. North Korea is certainly off the table. Uh, I was trained as a Korean linguist. And um, so I I did like two years of pretty in-depth study into into Korean stuff. Um, North Korea is an interesting is an interesting prospect because the atrocities and horror that th- that is committed there every single day is allowed to go uncontested. And when we say, you know, never again after, you know, Germany commits this, this Holocaust in World War II, it happens every day. It happens every day in North Korea. It happens every day, probably in other parts of the world. I don't know about because I'm an idiot, you know? And it's like, at what point is that our responsibility? And if you say, and if you're that person that says it is our responsibility to disrupt North Korea, it's our responsibility to disrupt all these things going on, the Uyghur population in China, it's our responsibility. If you're the type of person that says that, I don't necessarily disagree with you. Like, I could understand not wanting to sacrifice lives to do that. But at the same time, like, where do we draw the line? Like you said, Alan, I, I don't know. 
I don't know. I don't know. When, when, when it comes down to like like boots on the ground and sacrificing American lives, if Kim Jong-un started eating babies on television tomorrow as a form of human sacrifice to, to better himself, I don't think we should go to North Korea. And that's that's my bottom line, which I'm not. We, 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 might, we might have different different views on this podcast. I am I am a very... Are they raw babies or are they cooked? That's kind of where my... Tell that's, me that's you were in the army the without telling me you were in the army. <laughs> Yeah. Can, how dark can you make the jokes, gentlemen? I don't know. But. I, I just wanted to go to an extreme. Yeah. I agree with both of those statements. I agree with my statement and I agree with Stu's statement. And, and in whichever way you fall on that spectrum, you're, I think you're correct. Is it is it more than maybe just education of the situation? Like, I mean, we, we've watched the last couple of years where people just kowtow to China because Hollywood gets money from China. And maybe, maybe is it more so that if more people knew what the Uyghur camps were doing in China and more people knew what was going on in North Korea, maybe the social pressure from not only the United States civilians, but the world, and especially because we're so hyper-connected on social media and stuff, that would put enough pressure on either them to change because they are losing business because of it, or or, or is there going to be a social pressure in, in the way that says, like, like you guys are suggesting that we're saying, no, we need to go invade North Korea because it's horrible and try to flex a military arm, which I, I tend to disagree with as well, unless it got to a point where they're attacking us. I, I like I like the, the use of like social and economic pressure to try to try to dissuade other countries from doing things that we don't want. What I don't like is is people in America learning that there are atrocities in the world and deciding that someone else's kid has to go fight in a rice field to deal with them. Because because the the big issue is that in Afghanistan right now, or you know, every day, little boys are um, dressed up as girls and raped. Like that's bachabazi is a thing that happens in Afghanistan where they dress they dress little boys up like girls and they force themselves on them. That, that's a thing that some some men do in Afghanistan. In Libya right now, there is a, a human trafficking ring that is selling people into actual chattel slavery, and it happens every day. People in America are very um, separated from those things. And, you know, they see things on the news that makes them think, oh, my God, that's terrible. Someone else should do something about it. Well, the fact is that people don't want to be responsible for fixing problems, but they want problems fixed. And I think that that is an outlook that that needs to go away because if you're not willing to put up the blood and sweat and tears for it, then you shouldn't be trying to force anyone else to. That's a big, big, big proponent of the, the non-aggression principle and not forcing people to, to do things that you wouldn't do. So I, th I think something that I keyed in on what Alan was saying and Stu hit it as well, we're talking about human right violations, right? We're not talking about American right violations. So something in another country is so bad that we as a society or as a culture, as a humankind, like, hey, that's bad. We need to fix that. It shouldn't just be the United States military going in and fixing it. If something is that bad that it needs to be fixed, it needs to be a conglomerate of all the greatest, most powerful militaries in the world deciding together, yes, we need to fix that. If it's anything other than that, we just going to have to live with the fact that evil exists in the world and we can't we can't fix it all. And sometimes regional problems have regional solutions. So a, a good counter to North Korea. Well, it was a temporary counter was Cuba. I don't think uh, the Obama administration, like most administrations, did anything good. But I like the idea of getting rid of that. The, the trade restrictions, because I, I, I'm a firm believer that the best way to lift people up and especially to leave some shit like Castro level communism is the free market. 
That, and, and that was doing very well. And then for whatever reason, we got rid of that because the guy with the R in parentheses didn't like the, the guy in D in parentheses did it, right? So we, we reversed a, a really good idea. So when we look at you know, how, how do we convince these, these nations that, you know, hey, maybe you shouldn't be putting three generations of people in prison because somebody said the dear leader is fat, which he's fucking fat. He just lost a bunch of weight, though. I don't know if you saw the recent pictures. Hashtag glow up, dude. Kim Jong-un looks fucking amazing. That, that's how you pile on with that, that that international pressure, right? If you introduce a free market, because a lot of these places also happen to have a repressive economy. North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela, for that matter. Like, e- even the Gulf states, right? Like it, It's pretty similar throughout. The Gulf states are like communism with a fuckload of money, but it's it's still for the, you know, it's in the ballpark. You know, open it up, expose them to different ideas, expose them to economic trade, expose me to Cuban cigars, and like, and we all win. Amen to that. Yeah. I'd hate to divert another plane to get another Cuban cigar like we did that one a few times. So, your tax dollars are purchased. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm on this exact same page where I'm like, I don't think intervention in other countries when we're talking about like human rights violations, like that's not the job of our military. So like, I mean, I, I'm, and I'm clearly, I'm, I'm, I don't have an experience in it, but that's just like, it feels like a, a no brainer. And I'm, I'm curious why it isn't. And like, at the end of the day, it's like what I just generally get the sense of is there's some sort of special interest going on. Like, I guarantee we're not the only ones that were interested in getting lithium out of mines in fucking Afghanistan while we were there, or we're benefiting in some way from the drug trade while we were there. Hey. The Culinary Institute of America has nothing to do with the drug trade <laughs> in Afghanistan. The reason why it's not a no-brainer is, and I'll go back to 2017 when we dropped the MOAB, which what massive ordnance air blast on an IS on an ISKP cave in was it, it was Nagar, killed like a hundred and something people. Yeah, Akin Valley. I watched that happen live from the talk. It was Did wonderful. you do it, Curtis? I didn't do it, sadly. Oh, man. I cleaned it up, though. Anyways, it was awesome. We dropped this massive fucking bomb and like Stu and I knew about it a month in advance. So like when my wife calls me about, do you see this on the news? I'm like, yeah, I knew about it. We, we dropped this massive fucking bomb and it seemed like people were like, oh, fuck, we're still in Afghanistan? Like, so that's why it's not sticking, right? People didn't realize that we were still over there. People don't know. As soon as we went to, I, I, I said it in an episode of The Boardwalk, as soon as we went to Iraq, Afghanistan vanished from the minds of uh, people in the US. I remember when I was doing my first deployment in 2012, people were like, what, we're still in Afghanistan? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, man, head, heading over there. We, we haven't annexed that as the 51st state yet? Yeah. I mean, the, the worst thing that ever happened to Afghanistan was was March of 2003. Like, that, that was the worst thing that ever happened to Afghanistan. It's wild how fast we thought that would end. I mean, I remember doing like, you know, writing the article when I deployed, It's you know, and then before that, it was like doing, you know, coverage for the election for, you know, Ghani, you know, they stuffed the ballot boxes and we thought like any day now we'll be out of here. And that was like 2014. <laughs> and it's like seven years later, we finally get the hell yeah, out. Was that, was that Iraq or Afghanistan that had uh, the uh, the thumbprint ID thing with the blue ink? Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Yeah, you go put your thumb on it. Yeah, you had the purple thumbprint and then people would magically show up missing purple thumbs. I, I mean, a part of it, just someone like looking on from the outside and all you get is just like, maybe I know someone who was over there or maybe I see something on the news when it comes out. It was just like, there's almost like a deliberate sense of like confusion and, and maybe it's just me being totally in the West, not 
understanding the culture of being like boots on the ground, but like you can, I, I can hear Taliban and Al Qaeda like a hundred times and like under, like someone explained to me what the difference is. And I'll just be like, I still don't understand like the, the inner workings of everything or like, obviously I know Iraq and Afghanistan are two completely different places. And we were there at the same exact time and they're two completely different wars. But like in my brain at a certain point, it just all kind of coalesces into one. And that maybe is like the defeat is in terms of like, I don't know the, the public perception of it. Grant, if it's any consolation, Alan Jackson doesn't know the difference between Iraq and Iran. <laughs> Dude, dude, my 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 dad still like I I, I talk I talked to my dad about Afghanistan and he, he he's like what are all those mountains like I'll show him a picture of me there and he's like well all those mountains I thought it was all desert I'm like no that's Iraq <laughs> it's a different different country do you get a do you get a similar sense though that there's like some it's like almost a d- deliberate like I don't want to say it, it, it it's like sinister in any way but it's just like just keep them confused about what's going on and that way they'll ask less questions at the end of the day it's it's absolutely sinister grant i i am the most maybe the most cynical on the boardwalk podcast so go ahead and join me in the sinister realm absolutely kyle is charlie from it's always sunny in philadelphia with his pepe sylvia yarn chart (laughs) it's it's always sinister man i mean you've got like endless war for 20 years yeah the american public is like absolutely you know completely clueless when it comes to politics in south asia or the middle east they, they don't know that Afghanistan's not the Middle East, like stuff like that. Like, so you can keep that going, especially if you commit less troops there. And we talked about that earlier. I think Luke and, and Curtis talked about that is, is a, as you put less and less American soldiers there and more and more contractors, no one gives a shit about mercenaries, but they do care about American soldiers. So you can basically perpetuate a war if nobody's really paying attention. Well, I, I guess, uh, guys, I appreciate it, and I, if, if if it does uh, it does work out, maybe we'll have you back on and, and continue a conversation, or maybe there's something in the news that pops up, or maybe we will have a conversation about what Star Wars movie is best. But I do, I do want to, I do want to thank you all. It's it's been a pleasure, and just real quick, uh, just one of you each from each podcast, if you want to plug your podcast, where people can find it, and uh, maybe it's just any last words you want to say, and we'll uh, we'll we'll end the podcast. The Boardwalk Podcast is found on. I think every major podcasting platform now, after months of my friends going, why listen on Pandora? So I had to upload it to Pandora and now it's fucking everywhere. So yeah, it's The Boardwalk. You can find us on Instagram at The Boardwalk Podcast and then Facebook because inside we're all 75 year old boomers at The Boardwalk Podcast and a seldom used Twitter at The Boardwalk Pod. Um, we're on a little hiatus. I'm, I took a new job, so I'm moving this weekend. Uh, we'll be back Halloween weekend to start up season two with a fresh batch of topics regarding just what in the hell happened in Afghanistan. Yep. So you can find the Pangeway podcast, same as Zach said, everywhere, Spotify, Apple, Pandora, Audible, Amazon, whatever. There's like, I think there's like 45 different ones that I've found us on so far. Instagram at the Panjway Podcast, Twitter, Panjway Podcast, Facebook, the Panjway Podcast, www.thepanjwaypodcast.com. You can buy cool merch at panjwaypodcast.bigcartel.com. But yeah, you can find us pretty easily. We're uh, we're also wrapping up our season. We got two more episodes this season, then we'll be taking a break until January, and then we will resume with season three then. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Curtis, Kyle, Luke, Stu, Zach, and Grant, of course. <laughs> but thank you so much for doing this and I, i'm sure we'll be back on talk about all this stuff cheers guys and your insight is always awesome i love your podcast so keep doing what you're doing cheers man cheers it. cheers gents pleasure talking to you this-
This podcast is a work of passion and it's completely self-funded. We want to continue providing this platform dedicated to free thought and conversation, but we kindly ask that you show your support. Patreon isn't just a platform where you can give a small monthly donation. It also gives you exclusive access to extended, unedited episodes, bonus content, as well as creative input into whatever we cover. Being a supporter on Patreon makes you a member of the Kogan Conversation family and helps us continue this passion project. For just a few bucks a month, you can help us grow. The more we grow, the more perks can come to being a supporter on Patreon. Head over to our website and learn how you can sign up. Thank you for joining us for this important topic. But more importantly, thank you to the Panjway and Boardwalk podcast for taking the time to join us. We wanted to have on those who are well-versed in the discussion and get perspectives from those who've served. Obviously, both Afghanistan and interventionism deserve more than just a couple episodes. There are more perspectives, opinions, and understandings to be listened to, and we hope to revisit this soon. Our entire goal is to learn more about these topics and interact with those who live and breathe them to help flesh out more of a cohesive discussion. But for now, this concludes our discussion on Afghanistan and military intervention. Next up, Grant and I will be discussing election integrity. 2020's messy election and claims of fraud brought forth a new conversation about our democracy. Are our elections truly secure? Are there any shreds of truth to the Trump campaign's claims? Why is the MyPillow guy a thought leader for the Trump wing of the GOP? What could be done to restore public trust in our elections? Tune in for part one on November 8th and part two on November 22nd. In the meantime, we would really appreciate any feedback or thoughts you have for the show. Thank you. I'm Alan. And I'm Grant. Thank you for listening to The Kogan Conversation. This podcast is about engaging with different perspectives, values, and ideas. We want to learn how to progress conversations on important topics without assuming the worst in each other. Each month, we will tackle a new topic while enjoying a glass of our favorite spirit and shed light on the beauty of good conversation. Until next time. Cheers.